Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to 2 Timothy, the first chapter, and the seventh verse. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. You know, congregation, I believe that if you would look at the state of Bible teaching and Bible preaching today in the church broadly, you'd have to say it's in a very sorry state, a very sorry state indeed. I think that sometimes there are these two ditches that even good Bible-believing churches can fall into. On the one hand, you can have preaching that is true, that puts forth the truths of the Bible, the truths of the Word of God, but it never connects with real life, never speaks to the kinds of problems and issues that we have. There's nothing about living out the Christian life, nothing about putting the truths which we hear into practice. On the other hand, there can be preaching which is eminently practical, always speaking to the felt needs and feelings and experiences, but is ultimately not grounded or based in anything other than humanism, human ideas, human emotions. It is severed and disconnected from what preaching and teaching ought to be grounded in the word of the Lord. And when we come to a book like First or Second Timothy, we're reminded that the Bible is supposed to be a very practical book. That as the Apostle Paul writes to his dear friend Timothy, who has very tangible needs and problems and duties, He doesn't just give him a dry lecture, nor does he just give him some smooth words and happy stories. No, he takes the truths of the gospel and he impresses them upon this man's heart so that he receives the comfort and the instruction and the wisdom of God. That is surely what we need. And when I think about the practical use of this chapter in particular, it is verse 7 that particularly strikes me. Setting forth there these two options that confront every one of us, no matter what trials and troubles and duties we encounter. Will we live according to fear or according to courage? Well, let's Consider this verse under that theme, fear or courage, fear or courage. And what I want to do is unfold the verse with just uh, two thoughts here. First, we will consider the ungodliness of fear, the ungodliness of fear. And second, the grace of courage, the ungodliness of fear and the grace of courage. Now, what is going on in this chapter? Well, the Apostle Paul has been captured. 
You see, children, in those days, being a Christian was not a popular thing in the Roman Empire. Indeed, that society and empire was governed by paganism, by the worship of false gods. And wherever it was that um, the true people of God were living faithfully, they were rubbing against the terrible evil of this society that would have them not only serve many wicked and false gods, but especially honor the emperor as their lord. And so the apostle who has been living godly and faithfully proclaiming the gospel, ministering into the churches, he's been captured and not for the first time locked in chains, but not, uh, not such that he is unable to write. And so he's occupied, not with his own condition, his capture, which will ultimately lead to his beheading, as we know from church history, at the hands of these Roman authorities. But, as I say, he's occupied with the needs of his friend Timothy. Timothy. He, like Paul, was a gospel preacher, but a man of a very different temperament. We're all wired differently, aren't we? There can be a dozen different Christians, and you meet each one of them. They all know the Lord. They all have the Spirit of God in them, but their personalities are different. God deals with dramatically different people, and with dramatically different people, you have dramatically different temptations. And it seems that for this one Timothy, he was given to these emotional outbursts that were especially driven by the temptation to live in fear. To live in fear. It seems that this is what he's getting at here in verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. This was something Timothy needed to hear. That there was a fear living in his heart, a a terror and a dread that was robbing him of his joy, robbing him of his usefulness for God. And I think it's not hard for anyone of us to understand. There are have surely been times when you have known fear. What was it that was bringing this man to fear? Well, I think in in the first place you can say there was fear of the future. Fear of the future. Here is Timothy's mentor. The man who trained him in the ministry. The man who was like a spiritual father to him. Someone he loved dearly, someone he labored in the, in the mission of God with. And now this man whom he loves, he has been captured by evil authorities. And there's the real prospect of him dying. Indeed, that is what is going to happen. The future seemed very uncertain. When Paul was there, when Paul was giving leadership and instruction and wisdom, well, everything sort of seemed okay. It didn't matter if there was troubles and problems and afflictions. There 
was his friend Paul, pointing him to the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding him of the promises of the gospel. But now there's this prospect of one whom he loved, facing the peril of his very life. Everything would be different now once Paul was gone. There can be some times in our life when we're confronted with that, that nothing is going to be the same. Something has happened, whether to ourself or to those we care about, and suddenly it's like the ground has come out from under us, and the, the experience that used to be like a clear, bright, sunny sky, suddenly it fills with clouds and darkness, and it seems as though we can't see our way through. Fear of the future. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to the churches? What's going to happen to those who are dear to me? These things confronted this man, Timothy, and they can confront us as well. It's, it's not only him, but any one of us. We can be confronted with changes in our lives that leave us reeling and uncertain, doubtful, and worried. Of course, connected with that was the growing danger that he himself faced. Danger. A society where even godly men who had done nothing but preach the truth of Jesus Christ could be thrown in jail and executed. Paul wasn't the first certainly wasn't the last. The saying which one church father put it is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The way that God has appointed for his people is not an easy road. But to be faithful sometimes means being faithful even unto death. And whether or not you or I might be asked to lay down our lives for the Lord. The reality is that those who will live godly will suffer some measure of persecution, and particularly when there is a society that is being given over to idolatry, tyranny, and injustice. Such is not very different for ourselves. The The world that Timothy faced was one where at any moment the outbreak of persecution could could come and he and all those who would live godly would face the consequences for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. You look around at our society, you look around at the growing ungodliness, the unleashing of sexual perversions, the embrace of all manner of falsehood and lie and abuse of authority. And surely we have to recognize that even if this particular summer or has not seemed to have led to the convulsions in our own society that it perhaps could have or have in recent years, the reality is that we live in a very fragile world. You don't have to spend too much time reading the news or scrolling your social media feed and suddenly the prospect of doom, destruction, and all kinds of wrong 
fills our minds with worry. Perhaps if you have children or grandchildren, you worry, what kind of world are they going to face? Sometimes it seems as though the darkness is going to swallow up every shred of light, and even the name of Christ will vanish from our land and others, if not from the great majority of the world. It's a dark thing to contemplate that prospect of danger, but also it can sometimes be very tangible. A special threat to your safety, a special threat to your life, a health challenge, a, a problem in your uh, work or finances, and, and something that, whatever it may be, makes you feel unsettled and helpless. That's what we're facing here. And sometimes when we think about fear of this sort, we think about it in a kind of neutral way, as a kind of weakness, as a kind of helplessness. And, and surely there's, there's maybe some truth in that. There is a weakness in being fearful. But is it really the case that it is, it is excusable? Is it really the case that we ought to feel content to live in fear on, on some level. Well, it's actually far different than that when you come to it from the biblical point of view. Indeed, you look at how Paul himself structures this verse where uh, he says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Why does he say the spirit of fear? Well, this is what he elsewhere refers to as the spirit of the world or the spirit of the age. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. What is the spirit of the world? What is the spirit of fear? Well, some people have said that it's actually a power through the instrumentality of the devil that is being referred to here. That there's something about the devil and his power through his demonic forces that brings about a particular um, enslavement in the people of the world. But, well, I think there's there's certainly truth in that, and it's taught elsewhere. I think the spirit of the world in Paul's theology, it especially refers to the sinful attitudes that people have. The responses, they don't come just from an outside force or power. They come from your own heart. This is how you respond to your responsibilities and duties. And if it is of the spirit of the world rather than the spirit of God, then it speaks to a problem which is not excusable. No, it is sin. It is ungodliness. That is what Paul is saying. He he loved Timothy. And when you love someone, you speak to them about their sin. You don't just cover it up, but with tears, you come to them and say, this is not God's way. So it is. Fear is wrong. It's wrong. You think about 
how it happened with the disciples of the Lord Jesus. There they were in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, and it says they all get into a ship, and as they go out onto the Sea of Galilee, suddenly there's this great storm, and the wind is blowing, and the waves are churning, and they're coming into the boat. And, and what is it that happens? Well, his disciples, quite understandably, we would think, they go to the Lord Jesus who's sleeping and they, they try to shake him awake and they say, Lord, save us. We perish. We're going to die. Don't you care about us? Well, Jesus, he, he gets up and looks at this scene. He looks out at that storm and he looks at his disciples. I wonder, was there disappointment? Was there sorrow in his eyes as he said those words, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Who is this man that even the wind and the storm obeys him? But think back on what he said. Why do you fear, O ye of little faith? What is it? to be afraid. What is it to have fear? Well, what Jesus says here is that if you look closely, even for Christians, what is at the root of that? It is unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelieving what? Disbelieving what? Well, disbelieving the goodness and the power of God. There is Of course, a kind of fear which is only natural in the way God made us. You're coming out of the um, the church today, and let's say out of those those corn uh, stalks, out emerges a great big bear and charges at you. And not one of us is going to say you are in sin if you are afraid of that bear and you flee to your car in order to escape. That's, That's not what we're talking about here. This is an attitude of the heart that looks out at the problems that are beyond your control and is paralyzed with fear, with dread. And what that comes from is in those moments, those thoughts, they do not come from a place that is resting upon God's sovereign, kingly control over all things for our good. No, it is regarding This world is just a flux of chance and unguided events that can churn us up like an animal that's trapped in a great big machine or something like that. That's what's in view here. Jesus says, why are you fearful? What do you say that to some people today? You've come into this church service and you're weighed down. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? How is God going to work in this circumstance? How is he going to enable me to deal with that problem? And what does Jesus say? Where is your faith? Have you forgotten that all things are in my hand? Indeed, we ought to to say and, and not shy away from the truth that for those for whom this is not only a temptation and a weakness and a sin which they grieve, but those who are enslaved to fear, those who are properly called cowards, living in a kind of paralysis, then this can be a sign that you are without the grace of God. 
And we see it in, for example, the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, verses 7 and 8, where that uh, great book speaks in this way. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, or you could say the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It is a sin that can send you to hell, and you notice that it's a sin that's labeled with all these sins that no one would really quarrel with. Well, of course, those who commit sexual immorality, of course, they'll go to hell. Of course, the idolaters and the liars, they will go to hell. But the fearful, the cowardly, will God send someone to hell for being afraid? Well, probably what's going on there is not only the fear, but also what that fear leads to. In that verse, which is especially spoken to the church in the fires of persecution, it is speaking to an audience where fear is something that can lead you to even fail to confess the Lord Jesus before men. Is it any wonder that the Lord Jesus himself said, Fear not them which can destroy the body, but fear him which is able to cast both body and soul into hell. If anyone would refuse to confess Jesus Christ because of what it will cost them in their personal relationships or their finances or even the threat of their own life, then Jesus says that such as those he will not confess before his Father, which is in heaven. And that's ultimately what you see here, that this spirit of fear, it's so incompatible with, un- with true faith and belief because it drives you away from the true awe and reverence and, and fear of the Lord and drives you unto the fear of man or events or anything else. The ungodliness of fear. We have here, O congregation, what cause have we to mourn and to grieve this sin of fear that often lives within us? And how encouraging it is that this verse doesn't just speak about the ungodliness of fear, but also the grace of courage. I don't have to just speak to you today about how you and I have all fallen short in this. I don't just have to speak about how the cowards will be cast into the lake of fire. I also can speak to you about a God who turns cowards into the courageous. Look at what we have here. We have here in verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And of a sound mind. Now Paul, he could have simply had a very clear uh, comparison. He could have said, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of courage. But no, in order to unfold and to understand how true spiritual courage is wrought in the heart of God's elect people, he unfolds that grace in these three aspects to it. There is power 
there is love, and there is a sound mind. And each one can teach us something about the true spirit, the true courage that comes from the Lord. Because certainly there is a kind of courage that comes from the world. You can have people that can put on a stiff upper lip, that can kind of suppress their emotions or get a handle on themselves such that they appear to be very courageous. But it's not of the Spirit of God and is in its own way a kind of presumption and unbelief. No, this courage is what we want to focus on. So in the first place we see that the grace of courage, it is spoken of as power. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. Power. Do you remember what happened after the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and and he brought his uh, disciples out of uh, Jerusalem right before he ascended up into heaven and was enthroned? On the right hand of the majesty on high, the disciples were, were asking him these questions. They, they asked him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, um, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Is, is this when you're going to bring about your kingdom in, in glorious display now that you've risen from the dead? And what is it that Jesus said in response? Well, he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which my father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Power. You will receive power. And what was he referring to? He was referring to that glorious event at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured forth on that tiny group of men and women praying unto the Lord. And indeed, that group of people who just days earlier had been a fearful and cowardly lot, forsaking and abandoning the Lord Jesus in his hour of need, some of them even denying him with their lips, huddled away for fear of the Jews, now Jesus is saying, you, you will be my witnesses. How? How can we witness of Christ before this hostile world? We are a bunch of cowards. And he says, I will give you power from on high. How is it that this power comes home unto us? How is it that you can know the power of true courage? Well, it ultimately comes through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, he who suffered and died for sinners. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. How can I know if the Lord is at work in your life? I'll just ask you this question. What is it that you think of Jesus? What do you think of his death? What do you think of him being lifted up on that cross as a curse for sinners? Has that grabbed you? Has that come home to your soul? Have you seen that as important to you? Is it still foolishness to you? 
Do you think about it? Well, other people think about that. Other people care about such things. Other people tell me about such things, but really I'd rather think about anything else. Well, then you don't know the true power of this message. But this message is the power of God unto salvation for whoever believes. If you will believe upon Jesus Christ, you can know this power. You can have that at work in your life. Also the power of true courage. Let's put this beautiful way in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now you look at that text, it seems very similar to our own. And there actually the spirit of bondage unto fear, it's referring to the fear of hell. The fear of judgment under the wrath of God. And the alternative to that is the spirit of adoption. Being brought into Christ's family of faith. Whereby we cry out unto him, Abba, Father. Unto the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we have that assurance that we are the children of God. Then we have nothing to fear from the wrath of God. We have nothing to fear from hell. We have nothing to fear from the grave. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. And having known that that liberation from the bondage of fear of hell, then suddenly the fear of man, the fear of circumstances, the fear of pain and sorrow and grief and dread, suddenly that can vanish with it. For we come to see that everything is in the hand of the very God who has loved us and saved us. Let's put this way. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Would you know peace and joy instead of dread and worry? Well, then it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel as you are indwelt with that spiritual person, that Holy Spirit, as he comes and transforms you, as he subdues your hearts and your thoughts and your emotions and binds you unto the Lord Jesus Christ, then you come to see that everything is different. Everything cannot be thought of in the same way as before you knew that Holy Spirit. And it's practically outworked throughout all of your duties, all of your life. We walk by faith and not by sight through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, the apostle prays, Therefore, that uh, church in this way, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. You are able to suffer even with joy. You are able to know might and power, even in the midst of weakness, frailty, vulnerability, because of the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. There is how it 
is characterized for us. The true courage that we seek, it is power. Power to not crumble and to be suffocated under the circumstances of life, but to be a true victor over them. Knowing the Lord's love for us, we are able to live victorious lives. We add further that this true spiritual courage, it is not only power, it is love. It is love. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. Now, last week we spoke at some length about the love of Christ. And here it's said in opposition to the spirit of fear. And I think in Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this text, he drove this out in a way that, that really captures me. And he put it like this. And that is that the thing to understand about living in fear is that it is selfish. It is selfish. Perhaps you do not think about it that way when you're gripped by terror of the future, gripped by terror of what will happen in the future. You don't think about it that way as that that is the giving in to a selfish spirit. But I think that's especially what's in view here. Indeed, There is the love for God and the love for Christ which fills the heart. But I think what's especially here is the outworking of that love for Christ as it concerns our duties towards others. You think of how the Lord Jesus put it to us when he said that um, a new commandment I give unto you in John chapter 13, that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The true love for Christ and the true love for God, it always must embrace the love of his people, his church, other followers of the Lord. If you would be a true um, recipient of the power of the Holy Spirit, here is how you can determine that. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is love. You are caught up not only with your own concerns, but with the needs of others. And isn't that ultimately the case? If, if you would have a right and proper view of things, you would see that just dwelling in fear, just dwelling in dread for the future, just being gripped with terror, it doesn't do anyone that you love one bit of good. It doesn't do anyone who needs your help any bit of good. What the Spirit of God does for us is it liberates us from all things that are contrary to the revealed will of God. The revealed will of God is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you love your neighbor as yourself. What a sweet thing that is to give up those things which are useless to your mission, your mission of love, and to set yourself to this fervently, zealously loving those around you, thinking about how you can speak truth into their life to encourage them, 
how you can come alongside and lift them up when they are bowed down, how it is that you can help them with their practical needs to get them through the day, thinking how it is that you can come alongside those who may be suffering in silence. These things are expressed in the congregation and certainly they outflow into everything in, in life. For, for the Christian, we don't just look upon our neighbors or our co-workers as just another uh, body that you encounter. No, there is a never-dying soul. There is one who is made in the image of God. How can I show the love of Christ unto them? And ultimately, Christian, if this is your mission, your mission to show love out of gratitude for the Lord's grace in your life, then indeed you cannot afford to waste time and energy on that which does not profit. You have no right to live selfishly in fear. You must give yourself unto this, for this is your good and reasonable service, rendered unto the Lord as an acceptable sacrifice unto his praise and honor and glory that you love one another. And we add further this, that is in this uh, courage that is a grace of the Lord. And that is that it is a sound mind. A sound mind. A beautiful thought that I have, have in view. A mind that doesn't just collapse in on itself upon the strain and the, and the difficulties of living in this world. But a mind that is firm. A mind that has solidity to it. A soul that has been filled with the love of Christ such that it does not waver and falter in the hour of testing. I think that we have to recognize that congregation, we are emotional people. We are emotional beings. We are so often gripped by our emotions and our passions and they throw us around like a rag doll. They throw us about and do what they will with with us. And it feels like we are helpless in the grip of these emotions. But you look at that uh, sixth chapter of Galatians, the same one that says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It will also tell you the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. God and Christ would not have you to live enslaved to your emotions, not to be driven about by this way and that by your passions. He would have you to think. He would have you to take a hold of yourself and take hold of the truth of God and do not let go until you have this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Until you have this mind, which does not look upon things below, but on things which are above. A mind that is transformed through the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, working by the gospel. If we forget this and neglect this, then everything else falters. God deals with us as rational beings. He speaks to us his truth and expects us to respond. He would have us to hear his word, to conform our mind to it, and to conform our emotions unto our transformed mind. 
And so the Lord comes to you, fearful one. You say, I don't know how I can take another step. I don't know how the Lord can ask me to shoulder this burden. I don't know how it is I can, I can endure that particular cross. And Jesus would have you to think upon these things. He says in, Rome, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Do you believe in Christ? Not only when it is easy, but when it is hard. When you hear the news that you thought that you could never endure. When you encounter things that you never thought you would experience. When all your plans are dashed into pieces. Then comes the question, do you believe in Christ? Christ says, believe. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says in similar language in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, you are my flock. You are the sheep of my pasture. You are the sheep for which I have laid down my life. Fear not. Everything I've done for you, it comes from God's eternal good pleasure. It emanates forth from eternity, his eternal love for his people. And he says, do not fear, little flock, your father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. Well, what therefore follows, he says, sell that ye have and give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax, old, which wax not old. A treasure in heaven that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying don't live for earthly pleasures. Live for the treasure which is in heaven. Occupy yourself, yes, with your duties upon this earth, your labor of love for the Lord and for others. But do not fear. Do not Try to create such a comfortable little cocoon for yourself here, Christian. You were made to soar. You were made to soar in heaven with himself. You were made for eternity. You were made for that resurrection morn where you will glorify him as never before. You were made for him. You have not the need to fear for these things. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Christian, he's telling the truth. He will not leave you or forsake you in your hour of need. He will strengthen you when you have no strength to give. He will be your sufficiency in your weakness. Christ our Emmanuel is with us. I leave you with that thought. With that thought of that little group of three people standing before a fiery furnace. There they stand before a angry king who tells them if you will not bow before my golden statue here is the furnace where you will be incinerated. What is it that those three godly people said with one voice? They said in Daniel chapter 3, If it be so, our God 
whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Indeed, this applies to every Christian who would be asked to compromise out of fear for the consequences of following the Lord. But let me leave you with this. It also applies into every circumstance of life. The devil comes to us and says, be afraid, bow before this fear, tremble in terror, give yourself over to this terror and dread. And the voice of faith says, God is able to deliver him. He will deliver him. And even if God does not deliver him, then we will never bow down. All praise unto the Lord. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound.